welcome, welcome to risetoliberty.com. Uh, today, I actually have a very special guest with me. Uh, so we had actually just returned from the Reno National Libertarian Convention, and I had actually the pleasure of meeting him uh, at his table, and we, we just got to talking, and uh, then I went and searched his website and started communicating. Uh, of course, I did a little bit of homework and, uh, you know, went and watched some other interviews and everything, and so I wanted to make sure and get him on. So he's actually running uh, for the libertarian candidate position for the libertarian presidential run in 2024. Uh, so let's just uh, get him up here. We've got uh, Mike Termott. How you doing? Hey, Jacob, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. I'm honestly really excited to get you on. Um, like I said, I'm I was excited. I'm not sure you were uh, all that accurate describing me as a special guest, but I'm certainly an excited guest and I'm glad to be with <laughs> all you. All my guests are special. So <laughs> like I'm I said, sure that's I, true. I, I don't, uh, I don't like doing bad entertainment, bad TV. So, you know, bad TV uh, does suck. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, let, let my guests know. Uh, who you are, uh, where you come from, what what your background is. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Mike Termott, you can pronounce it that way, but uh, most people throw in the towel and trying to pronounce the last name, so just call me Mike, and that's fine. Uh, I'm an economist by uh, training and trade. I worked as a professional economist for over 20 years uh, out of George Washington University. I worked for the government and a couple of agencies, uh, including the White House, for a couple of years, taught at the university level at three different schools, um, had my own business educating bankers for a bunch of years, and then as a second career, uh, went to work as a police officer, from which I retired after 11 years of, of working as a beat cop until a few months ago. Uh, so that was a, a, a good uh refresher course in liberty and and how much we have to push back against in terms of our government uh, authoritarianism and and things that really matter on a day-to-day -day basis to people's lives real people's real lives it was uh, a sight to uh, behold we can we can talk more about that as as you wish but but that's sort of me uh two different careers uh over the past 30 some 30 some years i ran for congress as a libertarian in the special election this past january uh, campaigning for most of last year most of 2021 special election in florida's district 20 in broward and uh, palm beach counties a very blue area and uh, learned a, a lot about what people's expectations are and what their understanding is regarding liberty and the role of government in their lives. Uh, learned a, a lot to be disappointed by and learned a lot to, to show glimmers of hope out there as well, which is why, of course, I think there's a huge opportunity for the Libertarian Party in 2024. Yeah, I completely agree. We are uniquely situated where everyone seems to be very unhappy with the legacy parties 
completely understandable. Uh, what took you guys so long? <laughs> um, and uh, we we have the opportunity to come in and to sweep. And I absolutely love it. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to everywhere, but as long as we can get a couple of key positions, I think we're going to be much better off now than we have in the past. Well, it's all about showing momentum, right? Exactly. We need to show progress from one election cycle to the next, and 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 that that momentum shows up. It's what gets noticed. So uh, where we can win local elections, sometimes partisan, sometimes nonpartisan, we need to absolutely jump on those. I would encourage all of your readers, you've been beating the drum and many others have as well, where you have a local libertarian running, even if it's in a nonpartisan race, get out there and help them. Uh, whether that's throwing them a few bucks or collecting signatures or knocking on doors or passing out literature in the Walmart parking lot, something I've spent a lot of, a lot of weeks and weekends doing, it's, it's well worth it. Not only is it good for your candidate, but it gets the message out. And I dare say you'll learn a lot by going through those somewhat goofy and unnatural exercises. You get a lot of feedback that's really wonderful. So I kind of want to start, um, what brought you into libertarianism? Uh, what in, introduced you and what really sold you? Uh, I think being an economist uh, pushes you in that direction, you know, learning how markets work. Uh, I was a banker before that. And you see a, a lot of what goes wrong in terms of government regulation and uh, private sector institutions not being able to behave in a perfectly natural way and therefore not being as efficient. So you learn a lot that way. But being an economist and really getting a handle on how markets do work, uh, how they're supposed to work, and how easily they can be undermined by government intervention. Uh, I, I, I was schooled in a free market uh, uh, approach, what we used to call rational expectations, which was sort of an intellectual uh, descendant uh, of the Chicago School of Economics, which was, of course, a descendant of the Austrian school. And we were big believers, of course, in, in free markets and how they work. And what rational expectations mean uh, is that people anticipate what a government is going to do, take that into consideration. And in so many cases, especially monetary policy, which is the classic case, you see that government intervention uh, doesn't have uh, the intended effects. And so the government has to overreach to get anything done. And that's where you really get uh, problems. So a lot of it comes from being a professional economist. Uh, going way, way, way back, uh, when, when I was uh, in school, my dad made me, well, my dad made me read a lot of wacky books, but one that, uh, one that stuck, for which I'm grateful, was Milton and Rose Friedman, uh, Free to Choose, way back, uh, I think it must have come out in the late 70s, uh, I want to say 77, 78, something like that. And he made me read it when I was a, a kid. And it was one of those books that, you know, I'm sure if we were to go back and read it today, it wouldn't seem all that sophisticated, right? But for a youngster, it was uh, quite accessible in terms of the material and made sense what the Freedmans were talking about. 
is that our lives not only can be better if we're left alone, but the way that markets work and the way that people make decisions for themselves uh, is so much more efficient. It's so impossible for the government to make decisions for us that are as good as what we can make on our own, left to our own devices, left to our own mistakes sometimes, right? But left alone, uh, things can work so much better. In other words, it wasn't so much on an ethical uh, grounds that they were making the argument, just sort of that old Hayekian, uh, you know, argument that the government just can't process enough information to, uh, to, to run your life as efficiently as you can on your own. So uh, as a youngster, as a young budding uh, banker economist, that was really impressive stuff. And then, of course, uh, as you get older, you get more involved with the ethics of the situation, not, not just the efficiency. And that is something that uh, you really get involved with as a as a police officer, as, as you, as you might expect. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm always curious where people came into the movement or the philosophy. Yeah. Um, my, mine of course was uh, Ron Paul, 2009, I believe was, yeah. uh, and uh, actually paid attention to his 2012 campaign and everything. Cause I was actually able to vote by then. Yeah. And, uh, that's that that was my entry, you know, yeah, like like yeah. so many others. So no, that's good stuff. That's a good uh, point in time. Uh, I didn't register as a libertarian until I think it was 2010 or 11, something like that. So even though, you know, I pro like a lot of people, you might feel like a libertarian, but, you know, a lot of folks don't bother to register as such. I suppose that's that way with other parties, too. There are probably certain people that feel like a Republican and don't register as such or a Democrat and don't register as such. But I suspect for, for third party folks, uh, the number of people who are out there that that sort of uh, philosophically, intellectually, uh, ethically align with us is probably relatively large compared to the number of people who are registered as libertarians. So I didn't register as a libertarian until uh, maybe a dozen years ago or so. Uh, well, and I, I always end up hearing um, things like, uh, oh, well, you know, it's a third party vote. They're not really winning elections yet. And it's like, but that's what everyone says. So if you would just not do that, actually vote third party, we actually might be able to swing enough people over to start winning elections. I think you're you're right about that. I think there's a couple of ways that we need to go at that. For one thing, we need to convince people that we need to send a win, lose, or draw. We need to convince people to to sign up for the notion, right? That that we need to send a signal that we're sick of the political duopoly, as you describe them so accurately, the legacy parties, because I really think in so many ways they are legacy parties that intellectually speaking, are about to be left behind and potentially in a hard, nasty, unwelcome fashion. And I get the impression from so many uh, Democratic and Republican uh, Party uh, operatives and politicians that they really don't see it coming. Uh, but I do think it is coming. And, and we need people to get on board with the, the idea of sending that signal that we're done with them. Right. Uh, or at the very least, if you're if you're more optimistic than I am 
and think that uh, one of your legacy parties of choice can be saved, right? Can be uh, that ship can be righted, then then send that signal that uh, that you're unhappy with the way your party is uh, behaving. Uh, vote libertarian. Indicate that individual rights matter to you, and force the other parties to move in our direction. Having said that, uh, to your point, um, you know nothing nothing succeeds like success, and to the extent to which we can show some victories at at local levels, uh, I think that not only does it build momentum, as we talked about before, from one cycle to the next but indicates that there are others out there. You, you are not alone. If you feel like a libertarian, you are surrounded literally by millions of like-minded Americans. You just don't know it, right? Yeah, just exactly. Are, are not aware. That, that person standing in line next to you at Walmart is uh, possibly a libertarian-minded individual as well. And the two of you, if you would introduce uh, yourselves to each other, would learn. Uh, but we, of course, we don't have a vehicle for that, except for voting. And and so we need to to do that so that people realize the the power of the ideas out there that we collectively call libertarianism. And of course, at the national level, I do think it's possible to show great strides as well, uh, both in terms of the popular vote, uh, and we can we can talk about that. Uh, I know that one of the things that you said you wanted to talk about was this campaign for the presidential nomination and thereafter. I, I do think we can make great strides in, in gaining greater popular vote, but also uh, the idea of going after a particular state or two and trying to, uh, at the very least, cause bad waves for the legacy parties and quite possibly, I am quite optimistic that the, the, the door is open to our party winning uh, a, at least a state in the upcoming uh, presidential election. And to the extent to which we can show success in that early, in other words, before the November general election itself, to the extent to which we can take a run at a particular state in, in popular polling, Think about what an effect that would have on the public psyche. All of a sudden, people would uh, would take notice. So I think that there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things in play, a lot of ways to make an impact, a lot of strides that can be taken by our party. I mean, at this point, I'll I'll take five to six percent and just getting somebody <laughs> up on the debate stage. <laughs> and know? if it, I agree with you. Um, if the rules stay what they were, and I don't have any such crystal ball that says that the rules would <laughs> stay kaput, right? Um, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist and a whack job to be worried that there are forces out there that are going to work very hard at keeping us off the debate stage. Um, but if the rules stay what they ostensibly have been in the past, we need to get to 15% and do so in more than one poll. Uh, I think that that is doable. Uh, it takes the right type of campaign. It takes a candidate who people would view as a credible threat to make it all the way to the White House. One of the things that that we have discovered uh, over time, just watching the legacy parties and, and 
by the way, watching our own uh, candidates as well, is that if people do not believe that you can credibly make a run toward the White House, even if it's a long shot, right? Maybe it's one in a hundred, but if they don't believe that that could possibly happen, then they're not giving you the time of day. You, you could be the greatest thing ca- since Captain Crunch, but they're not giving you a look if they think either there's just something about you that's too wacky uh, or you don't have the background or the credibility or whatever, you know, there's a hundred things that have to align, right? A hundred stars that have to uh, align. But if you don't have all of those things uh, in place, you're not getting a bite of the apple, no matter how great your philosophy is. So we need to run a very, very professional campaign to take a run at that 15% number. So one one thing I kind of want to go back to, I, I don't want to spend too much time, but I definitely do want to touch on it, is uh, you worked in the White House, which is uh, sound, sounds a lot cooler than what most people would think. Um, but It's horrible. <laughs> so and also, um, you know, you said in the White House. I, I would say I would work for the White House. The building I worked for. in was officially part of the White House complex, but it was across the street where all the, you know, the uh, nobodies are, right? Uh, <laughs> as a young economist, my boss's see if I can get this right. My boss's 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 boss was the president of the United States. So it wasn't like uh, he and I were having lunch shooting this shit about what fiscal policy <laughs> ought to be come uh, next spring. Uh, my job was to uh, help uh, keep track of and control certain elements of the federal budget and make sure that everybody understood how the law worked uh, and uh, help people work out what you know, the implications of certain types of legislation would be and that sort of thing and uh, edited and prepared congressional testimony for our bosses and, and, and things like that. Uh, a horrible job, right? Um, I probably had uh, 30 jobs in my lifetime and that was easily the worst one for a variety of reasons. A tremendous amount of uh, hard work, a tremendous amount of frustration. It is true uh, as corny as it may sound, it is true that public service is something that is that is good for you. It is good for the soul. Um, it is something that changes you a little bit, that teaches you a lot, not only about how the government works, and it does, it teaches you something about yourself uh, as well, about how you feel about certain things policy-wise as well as public service-wise. So I recommend... Uh, anyone out there who has the opportunity to uh, to enter into public service uh, on a professional basis or otherwise on a volunteer basis. But uh, if, if there should be an opportunity out there uh, to do so on a professional basis, I highly, highly uh, recommend it. Um, it was a great experience, but a terrible job. <laughs> so yeah, you learn a lot about fiscal policy, you learn a lot about how the government works and how the budget works, uh, how the administration works with uh, other agencies and how difficult it is to accomplish anything legislatively. You also learn some things that I think you kind of wish you didn't know. 
But we all learn as we get older, nonetheless, that political compromises are made. Um, compromises you wish weren't. Uh, you learn the frustration and the disappointment of, you know, people who you ostensibly respected and just made decisions that you didn't like. And um, I think we're, you know, we all get this just as voters, just as citizens, right? That's a disappointment we all feel. Whether you vote for someone or not, uh, we've all been in a situation where we're rooting for some politician, whether it's our mayor or governor or our president, to do the right thing, even if whether they're in our party or at a different party, you wish they would do the right thing. And then they don't, and you're upset and you're disappointed. That sting is a slightly stingier when it's when it's one of your bosses, right? And when you really thought that won't happen, you know, when when he said George Herbert Walker Bush said, uh, "Read my lips, no new taxes," right? We were all like, "Yeah, that's that's showing them, that's sticking it to them." And, and a bold statement like that, surely he couldn't back up on that. But he did. Yeah. And uh, wow, it, you know, that that's enough to turn into a libertarian uh, straight away. Um, but the truth of the matter is that that's not just a, a party problem. And it is a party problem. It's not just a party problem. It's also uh, an individual problem. Um. You know, you got to know where your politician's heart is if you can find it, right? Yeah. So what? how did you get from the White House uh, working as an economist into law enforcement? 20 years later, right? Um, (laughs) I worked as a professional economist uh, in in a couple of government agencies. Uh, and multilateral agencies, the World Bank, uh, the International Finance Corporation, which is an affiliate of the World Bank. A few months here, a few months there. I worked for um, uh, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is a government agency uh, doing private sector-related stuff, uh, growth fund in Africa, working on helping people make investments there. Um, So some good learning experiences. I went to work... uh, as a, sort of a free market advocate for the American Bankers Association, which is a surprisingly interesting uh, experience. And then uh, launched my own business, educating bankers and uh, bank operations and some policy related stuff and did that for quite a few years. Um, merged that business into another business and found myself uh, sort of unemployed. And in a, in a good way, not in a, not, in a, not in a bad way, and thinking about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And it occurred to me that that was the one thing that I'd always wanted to do and never, never took the time and made the investment in it. I had originally taken the exam to enter the Washington, D.C. Police Department in 89, 90, something like that. Uh, that's going back a ways. And just decided the money wasn't there. I, I'm, I'm not proud of admitting that was part of the decision point, right? Um, I, you know, I was interested in starting a family and, uh, you know, career and all that. And I was, in, I was in graduate school at the time and just decided uh, 
look, $26,000 even in those days wasn't a lot of money and uh, stayed in school. So came back to it in uh, 2010. I was teaching at Barry University and at Nova University and uh, working uh, in the public uh, school system as well, doing a lot of substitute teaching, uh, teaching a lot of high school, uh, and uh, went to work for, joined the police academy in 2010. I figured I wasn't getting any younger, so I better hop on it while, while the getting was good. And I kind of thought, to be honest with you, uh, I kind of thought it was going to be a four or five year thing. You know, uh, how, I mean, how complicated can this be? You're going to figure it out in three or four or five years. You'll have experienced everything that's worth experiencing. And then it'll be time to, to go back to the real world and go back and teach economics or get a job or <laughs> something. And I got to be honest, I just fell in love with the job. There's a lot about the job you're going to hate, right? But back to what we were saying about public service. Um, if, if you've got the public service bug, being a cop is hard to walk away from every single day, finding a new way to try to help somebody out and failing over and over again to be able to do anything, right? The things that you see that you want to be able to help with and find yourself helpless can be very, very frustrating. But if, you know, for folks who are civic minded, I would say in some part, that's all of us, right? I think there's a, there's a piece of every single one of us that wants to do right by our neighbor, right? Wants to find a way to help. We all want to believe in something bigger than ourselves. That's part of what gets us up in the morning and, and drives us. And the opportunity to work with local families and and help solve their problems, whether it's uh, health problems or violence problems or legal problems. And there's an aspect of being a cop that's just, you know, chasing down bad guys, that sort of thing. And that's a big part of what motivates, especially the youngsters. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, no such thing as a libertarian who wants to stand up for your rights, who believes in bad guys taking away. It's not just the government that infringes on our rights. Uh, we need to protect each other's rights from people who would do the wrong thing as well. So it was something that I just thought was the cat's meow uh, for a lot of reasons for a lot of years. And I stayed in that for for 11 years, which looking back, it went by fast. But that's that's kind of a long time, right, for something that you go into just for the experience. And And I stuck with it. There's a lot of things about it that that you don't like, right? Uh, we need to make profound changes in this country, probably worldwide, by the way, but yeah, especially completely agree. we need to make profound changes in terms of how we manage police, as well as how we uh, use police. You know, one thing that, that, you know, we got to come back to the war on drugs, but one thing that I used to tell my coworkers who would of course tease me because it was my second career, right? Uh, I was basically their uh, parents' age, like most of my coworkers. Uh, one thing I would always uh, allow them to understand is that 
if you weren't an economist before becoming a cop, being a cop will teach you to be one. <laughs> you know, you cannot help but to see the effects of bad public policy on people, on individuals, on families, on clans, on neighborhoods, on cities, on states. Uh, just awful, you know, and it's everything. It's bread and butter libertarian issues, the things that we talk about all the time. Bad schools, the absence of school choice, bad housing policies uh, that concentrate uh, poverty into certain areas and become breeding grounds for, for crime. And then you layer on top of that uh, the war on drugs, which, of course, is, is where street crime comes from, right? Street crime is an invention of the government, not intentionally. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but whether it's intentional or not, it's no better. Street crime is almost definitionally a part of the war on drugs, part of our drug prohibition. And when you, when you combine that with bad public schools and bad welfare policies that take away the ability, in so many cases, the ability for people to look forward to making something greater out of their lives. When you combine the absence of that hope with the opportunity to make money in street crime, what do you think is going to happen? And then, of course, we pursue, we pursue street crime and the war on drugs so hard. We incarcerate so many people. We break so many families. We break so many communities. Truly, we have the most oppressive criminal justice system in the world. Now, we don't do as good a job as some communist regimes in prosecuting our political <laughs> prisoners. They're still ahead of us in that category. But just in oh, terms yes. of locking people up, we're catching up though, right? But um, in terms of locking people up, man, no one... No one matches the United States. It's, it's, it's awful. As an economist, it's awful. As a cop, it's frustrating. As an economist, it's awful. Yeah, it's, it's something interesting. Um, so I personally am on the more extreme side of the libertarian aisle. Um, however, you know, I, I view it as a, uh, a freeway and, uh, every, belief system has an exit. Um, you know, the minarchists get off the freeway before the anarchists. And so I, I'm heading all the way to Ancapistan. Um, however, I do realize that we have to reform before we could do a lot of these other things. And yeah. one thing that really, in my opinion, and I know many other people's opinion, is to abolish qualified immunity Absolutely. And, uh, By the way, that's asset. a reform. That's not a. Exactly. You don't have to get to uh, in Kapistan to uh, to get rid of qualified immunity. Well, no, that's just some of the first steps. Because, uh, um, I mean, a, a volunteer uh, police force. I. It's it's not the. It's not the existence of police. Uh, I no matter what, there's always going to be some some level of police force or law enforcement as long as you uh, have contract crime, right? enforcement. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, as long as there's bad people, there's always going to be, have to be somebody to uh, yeah. account for that. Yeah. You're um, 
be even in an anarchist society. So, yeah. Um, so with that, you know, there there are certain steps we need to take to be able to get back to minarchy before we could go anywhere. Um, as a former police officer, how do you see things with the police force now? Uh, just in general across the country, I mean, the, the way things work now. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a couple of problems. Um, one in terms of just holding police accountable and the transparency of doing so, uh, I think is a real problem that I lay at the feet of the, the unions, but I don't blame them for it. In other words, I, I think the unions naturally uh, almost cannot help themselves. I don't think it's the right thing to do for cops in the long run, but we'll get to that in a moment. But unions almost reflexively try to protect uh, their current members, right? And, and they believe uh, that that means uh, thwarting transparency in terms of how police are held accountable. It means uh, thwarting differentiation among police officers. In other words, we don't have good systems for differentiating what a good officer is from a not so good officer. These are problems with police contracts. Uh, they are problems with police unions. Given that that's how unions operate, right? I lay this at the feet of the union, but don't blame them. Who I blame are the politicians who find it virtually impossible to stand up to, or they're virtually unwilling to stand up to the police unions. Let me give you an example. In the city where I worked, I'm not going to, I'm not in the habit of, I'm not in the business of throwing people under the bus by name, but won't be hard to identify who I'm talking about. Uh, you know, we had a mayor uh, in our town who did a lot of things right. Let me, let me say that first of all. But when the mayor's representative, uh, city employees, the city attorney, outside consultant, whoever, comes and negotiates with the union. Now, I sat in on some of these negotiations because I was the economist, right? So I was the, the numbers nerd that had to sit in on some of these uh, conversations. Now, just as recently as a couple of years ago, but certainly going back uh, every three years, three years before that and three years before that, it's the same in every cycle. But as recently as a couple of years ago, what would your expectation be if you were going into a union contract negotiation uh, with the representatives of the city, the representatives of the mayor? We all have televisions we all know what's going on in the world, right? People are upset about these transparency issues, about qualified immunity and holding police accountable, folks not having uh, access to, to redress in court when they feel like they've been wronged, the ability to differentiate between good performance and bad performance. We, you know, as an economist, we all recognize that we should be paying the good ones more and the bad ones less and running the bad ones out of the industry, right? Just like any other business. So you're going into this negotiation and you're anticipating this is what the city is going to be asking for, right? Yeah. We go in and we say we want a 5% raise. City says we want to give you a 2% raise. 
4%, you know, you end up at three and a half or so. That's, that is as sophisticated as the conversation got over a six month period. I am not exaggerating one iota. At no point does the city say, I need a little bit more control. I need to be more involved in training. I need to be more involved in uh, hiring. I need to be more involved in, uh, I need a, a better right to dismiss bad officers. I need uh, to be able to make more transparent how the disciplinary system goes. I need a city representative more involved in disciplinary. I, I mean, think of all the things you would ask for, right? Um, didn't ask for one, didn't ask for one. And that's the way it is in many towns, in many jurisdictions. Why? Well, as it turns out, the police union is the only, now that the fire department has merged into a larger organization, the police union is the only political force in town. We decide who's going to be mayor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, she has no choice in her mind. She figures she can't stand up to the union because she'll be voted out next time. And she may be right. I'm not saying she's dumb. I'm saying that she's captured by the political forces. So what do you do about it? I'm not a big believer in uh, striking down the First Amendment and saying, you know, you we don't have the freedom to associate. You, you can't have a union. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but I do believe that there are ways to get around the union. You put your finger right on something that's a good example of qualified immunity. We need to uh, get rid of this uh, humongous deference for police officers in court, uh, the leading example of which is qualified immunity, but it doesn't stop there. And, and I appreciate the fact that there's always gonna be some deference to police officers in court. Uh, and it makes sense, uh, officers are, uh, experience they're sworn in i mean uh gee whiz you got to be able to trust somebody sometime um, i mean their track record should go into that but most definitely well that's exactly right and it does uh when um sorry i got so excited i smashed my camera um <laughs> when when a police officer screws up an attorney is allowed to bring that uh up in later cases the problem is that so often folks uh don't have an ability to take an officer to court and even when they do things get settled too quickly and they get uh, thrown out too quickly it's too hard to make the case qualified immunity is the leading example but like i say there are others the reason we need to get around this is not just as an ethical matter uh i i think it's part and parcel of being an american that you ought to have redress in court if you feel that the government has wronged you, right? Uh, whether that's in the form of a police officer or anybody else uh, in or out of the government for that matter. It's not just an ethical matter, but there is an efficiency matter at stake. If we can get rid of this deference, police officers would be forced to get liability insurance in the private sector. And private sector insurance carriers are not going to put up with the bullshit of union contracts, right? Fair enough. To your point yeah. about uh, past history ought to matter, darn right. Uh, 
if I, if I'm going to give you insurance against you being a screw up, and let, let's assume for the moment that the vast majority of police screw ups are just that and not intentional. That's a whole nother ball of wax that we should probably tackle in a moment. Uh, but let's let's uh, let's presume that nine out of ten of what we're talking about is just screwing up, being a jerk, uh, being careless, or just a an honest mistake. Uh, if I'm going to provide insurance against you making a mistake, I got to know everything about you. I got an, I got, I need your performance history. I need your disciplinary records. Uh, I need, I need your instructor's notes. Uh, from Mental eval. <laughs> everything, right? Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, I, I get that, uh, as a police officer, you're not going to sign up for the police department that makes this all available on the website. Yeah. Um, but it, an insurance carrier is going to demand all this, right? And to the extent to which you screw up over and over again, you're not going to be able to afford the premium. Yeah. You're going to get run out. You're going to get priced out. In other words, it's going to be more like other markets, which is what we want. It's got to become more like other high liability businesses, like being a surgeon. You know, doctors, yeah. you know, we don't live in a world where we say, well, you know, doctors mean well, so we're not going to let you sue them. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I assume that most doctors do mean well uh, the vast majority of the time. But when there are mistakes made, uh, you know, you can't just say, well, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> And it does suck. I, I don't mean we don't say that, but it can't be the end of the story. Yeah. Right. Accountability uh, has got to be uh, placed at someone's feet. That's exactly right. Not only that, to run out the bad actors, uh, but to add some efficient, some uh, risk mitigation efficiency to the markets. Well, and, and, that, and that's, that, that's what we're missing. That, that's what um, is so concerning to me about qualified immunity. Um, it seems as though that, the the people who will go into the departments with the intention of actually making a difference, a good difference in their community, their hands are tied. Uh, they, they can't do anything. And then so all you have left are the bootlickers and order followers. And then it's like, the, <laughs> that's a very scary police force when, you know, they'll do whatever they're told. Well, uh, there is that. And of course, uh, you know, the war on drugs is the primary example, right? 51 um, years ago today, by the way. <laughs> That's when it started with Nixon. So <laughs> it's been a long time and it is no coincidence uh, that only a little bit longer than that is the war on poverty, uh, which is just as unsuccessful and uh ironically just as damaging to the communities that 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 we spent so many hard working hours trying to uh trying to serve yeah um the war on drugs undermines everything not only does under as we discussed moments ago undermines families and communities but imagine what it does to the relationship between your police department and your community yeah just horrible just horrible and, uh, you know, no amount of you as an individual bucking it 
is going to much matter. Yeah, I wasn't a, a drug cop and I didn't have to get involved in that sort of thing. But, you know, me telling my boss I thought it was stupid um, doesn't get you a lot. Of, my boss thought it was stupid. It wouldn't, it wouldn't even disagree with me, right? Um, but the state of Florida, in my case, but every state in the union thinks that this is something that we need to dedicate resources to keeping people away from drugs and and using the heavy hand of the criminal justice system uh to do that it's anyone who's worked as a you don't have to have worked as a cop to know it's insane but anyone who uh has worked as a cop knows that it's insane knows that it doesn't work you don't have to be an economist uh, to to see that it just uh doesn't work um you know, the number of people that that die every day in this country from drug addiction, it's a huge health problem. You cannot tell me that anybody could possibly think that the war on drugs is going well. We need to treat addiction like the health problem that it is and the criminal justice system absolutely gets in the way of that. It's not a healthcare system, <laughs> you know, Darn right. it, and it, and it, it can't, it can't perform as one. And so it, it any can't. terrible, if, if I'm doing, if I'm doing CPR on you because of your overdose, something has gone wrong. Right. Yeah. And, and that was many, many times, mm. a lot more than, you know, drug bust that I had to back up. Uh, was the number of times I had to do CPR on somebody and most of them don't make it right. Yeah. And it's just a horrible, horrible, it, it, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. And so often it's people that won't reach out because they know the criminal justice system is a, is a part of the problem. Yeah. Terrible. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean for your show to get so depressing. <laughs> well, it, you know, some, sometimes, this is the reality of things and yeah. we are causing our society far more harm than any. Uh, well, I, I see no benefit from the war on drugs, period. It, it's not even little benefit. It's no benefit. Right. The, the only, the only people that do benefit are, you know, maybe the private jails and prisons, you know, if, if uh, you own a private, jail and you need people in there to make money then that's about it <laughs> Other sure than if that, you're in the, or if you're a drug cop i suppose yeah right? yeah you know you can make a career out of it but you know that that's not really an advantage you can make a career out of doing something different if it weren't for that we used to say we used to believe uh i would say as recently as uh, 20 years ago we used to believe that by making it uh criminal we were sending a signal that it was not okay Right. So families could at least say, I, I don't want to decriminalize because I'm afraid it would send a signal to my kid that drugs are OK and they're not. Um, I, I get the logic. Right. But I don't think that that's a legitimate claim anymore today. I don't think that people look at the government as a moral authority, as an ethical leader. Yeah. And by yeah. the way, yeah, well, you shouldn't, by the way. Yeah. Seriously, uh, but but to the extent to which anybody still hangs on to that argument, 
and I get that, you know, I've raised kids. You want everybody to be on the same page, right? Uh, I want my neighbors to reinforce the messages I give my kids and I want my government to reinforce. I want, you know, that's just how you think when you're a parent. So I, I understand that, but look, that's one of the complexities of being a parent. Think about all the stupid shit you don't want your kid to do that's legal. This is just one more. And by the way, most people who get involved with drugs are not afraid that they're going to, uh, to get caught. So it's not like we're scaring them straight. It's only <laughs> yeah, after you're addicted yeah. that you're afraid of uh, getting caught when you call for help. So it's the justice system is not there when you wish it were, and it is there when you wish it weren't. It's kind of backwards in, in all too many cases. So uh, truly, I, I, I do not blame the, uh, you know, the ethics on people in pre, prior generations. I, I think that it was people grasping at straws that didn't understand how this was going to work. Um, I think that we are we were in past generations too comfortable with the idea of government institutions looking out for us. Uh, frankly, I think there are too many Americans today who still believe that governmental institutions and other large institutions are in the business of looking out for us and can do a good job of doing so. Thankfully, I think we're getting away from a little bit of that, but most of the American electorate is grasping for where to go next, having <laughs> said all that. Um, but uh, would you agree that given all that, it's an opportunity for us? I think most people are recognizing, albeit slowly, maybe two eyeballs at a time, that the war on drugs is not working. It's counterproductive. Um, it took a long time to de decriminalize weed. I would argue that the next step, to your, to your uh, point about the freeway analogy, right, uh, that uh, we all want to go pretty far. Some people might not want to go all the way. I would say the next step is to decriminalize things that are not addictive. Yeah. Uh, I think that people will get comfortable with the idea of weed being legal. They'll get comfortable with the idea of things that are not uh, addictive being legal. And then you go to the next step and say, look, uh, you know, uh, as Ron Paul said, if, if heroin were legal, would you take it? You know, yeah. it, the government isn't the one stopping you from taking it now and prosecuting people is just, it's look it's in the same category as prosecuting people for having diabetes i mean it's mm -hmm. a health problem you know what we're gonna we're gonna say uh, that you need a sugar cop right you're not eating right so we're gonna i mean new york tried that with uh trying to ban you know large sodas so <laughs> they absolutely did that's spot on can you imagine making that criminal Oh, man. Well, well at some level, uh, even uh, civil law imposed by a government agency winds up criminal eventually. Yeah. If, if you try to buck the system and say, no, I'm going to serve my 32 ounce full sugar Coke, uh, you're going to get fined and then you're going to get shut down. You know, it, eventually it gets enforced by uh, by that, by force. Well, and then so, you create a black soda market. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know? Large you, quantities you, of soda being moved you throughout the city. You cannot save us from our diabetes. Night. We are going to take <laughs> our heroin and our diabetes 
And there's just no way to to save us from that. And certainly criminalizing yeah. it is not the way to go. And and we're not even talking about the ethical matter, right? Yeah. I mean, as libertarians, we rec- you and I are having a conversation about the efficiency and the silliness of it and how it doesn't work. But the ethics, I mean, and I think that that's harder to explain sometimes to people outside of Most libertarianism is, look, the government uh, doesn't have the authority. Even if we agreed it were a good idea, <laughs> and we don't, but even if we agreed that it were a good idea, the government doesn't have the authority to determine what you do with your body. Well, I mean, if my neighbor came over and uh, tried to tell me what to do with my body, I would be pretty upset about that. It's like, who do you think? And you so are? would he when you shot him. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, what? It, that that doesn't change once you get to this larger, more abstract group called government. You know, if it's if it's wrong for your neighbor to do that or s- some stranger to do it to you, it's wrong for a large organization to do it to you. <laughs> Absolutely. So. And less efficient. At least my neighbor knows mm. something about me. Exactly. If my neighbor comes over and says, you know, you haven't been eating right lately, Mike, um, I might listen. Right. Mm-hmm. But if the government says that to you, it's it doesn't uh, pass the laugh test. Exactly. Yeah. So. So anyway, uh, that may be a long winded uh, answer to your basic question about being a cop. It can be an awfully frustrating uh, experience. But, you know, that's where fr- frustration comes from caring. Right. Uh, if if we didn't care. Uh, you wouldn't get frustrated. You wouldn't be upset by the system. And uh, you wouldn't be trying to to make the changes and to pass the word and to let people know that there's a, a better way of, of doing business to allow you to live your life to your own standards and by your own measures of success, your own measures of ethics, and by your own bonds to your to your family and to what you believe in. Uh, when we say it's important to believe in something greater than yourself, we do not mean the state of Florida. (laughs) It's got to have something more ethical to bind us together than, uh, than that. So uh, it's what what it's all about. My my next question, uh, and we'll, we'll start wrapping up here um, into the end of this, but do you think practically that America is in a spot and there, there's a second part to this question, but America would be ready for a libertarian president? I, I think so. Um, understand. And let me, let me back up uh, for a minute. Um, I believe that a lot of what has gone wrong for us in the last uh, generation of politics, and I would start with, uh, let's start with cable news media. When we bifurcated how we get our news, not just the internet, but when, you know, when Democrats got their shtick from one group and the Republicans started getting their shtick from another group, I think we headed out on a path of not understanding people in the other party, viewing them much more negatively than we had before. 
and taking much more seriously the fight between the two so that we have progressed in a fashion that I believe is accelerating and is accelerated with the internet. I'm a big internet uh, proponent, so don't hear me wrong, but one of the things that has gone wrong is that we have moved farther and farther down the line of not sharing a basic set of goals, objectives, in some cases, facts, in some cases, priorities, principles, with people in the other party. We question the patriotism of people in a different party. We don't understand the motivations of people who are on the other channel. And now we have progressed so far that each party has taken as its primary objective, each of the legacy parties, its primary objective is to keep the other party out of power. No longer can you say, and polling data show this, by the way, it is no longer the case that Republicans' number one priority is free markets. They are no longer even a pro-free trade party. Their big objective is to keep Hillary out of the White House. Now, don't get me wrong. I respect that particular goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed. But you get my point yeah. is that it's all about causing the electorate to fear the other party. And I believe that we have gone so far that we now accept the fact that each party is going to try to make you fear the other party more than you fear the opening distance from the Constitution. And that is where authoritarianism, by definition, comes from. When I can convince you that I need to be in power because the alternative is horrible, and the more power you give me, the better job I can do of keeping you safe from those bad people. That's where authoritarianism comes from out of a democracy. Safety versus liberty. Absolutely. I read just yesterday something that I thought, speaking of Hillary, that I thought she was smart enough not to say. But I was wrong. As I so often am, I was wrong. <laughs> She said, I'm not going to get the quote quite right. I should have written it down. But she basically said that keeping the Republicans out of power is so important that anything that we do that is not related to that is unimportant. In other words, she's admitting my theory that they no longer have as their primary objectives the institutionalization of certain policy. It's just a matter of keeping the other party out. And I'm pretty sure most Republicans feel that way about her and about Democrats. Now, remember, we're all upset this week, and we've been upset for months about, you know, Donald Trump saying he won the election and, you know, it's so important for him to stay in power, blah, 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 blah. Stupid shit, right? Okay. We tend to forget that he's not the first one to make that up. Hillary said, uh, when he came to power, Hillary said he was an illegitimate president. And she used the word illegitimate. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, they, it goes back to Bush and Gore. You know? Bingo. So, Bingo. If you peel that onion, it, it's, it doesn't get prettier. <laughs> <laughs> but it does get louder and more bald-faced with each succeed. Now, the Republican Party is open about trying to get more Republicans into positions to control uh, the electoral process. And the Democrats are, are more vocal about them controlling the process. Consider each party has gone to extraordinary lengths to control the process by which Supreme Court justices are appointed. President Biden was talking about packing the court. You know, maybe I'll nominate two more. Maybe we'll go from nine to 11 or 13. I don't know what the magic number is. If each party uh, ups it, you know, we'll be to 39 by the end of this century. And, of course, the Republican Senate wouldn't confirm Merrick Garland uh, going way back when because they just decided uh, they didn't like him. And don't get me wrong, I was no Merrick Garland fan myself, but, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, to hell with the Constitution, we want our guy in. Is sort of the attitude going on, on both sides. That's where authoritarianism comes from. And I believe that that's accelerating. And we need to step in that breach. We need to be the party. It, to your point about the freeway, right? I believe that we need to point out that the next stop on the freeway is not anarchism, but just to get back to the Constitution, just to head toward the Constitution, which, which, you know, if we were having this conversation 50 years ago, we would have said is just the next stop. That's not far. That's just on down the road. It's getting pretty far at this point. You yeah. know, we got to go a couple of exits to get back to the Constitution. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, e even that far. <laughs> yeah, even. <laughs> right. And, and that's not a bad look for a political party. Now, as the, as the standard bearer, you need to be prepared to tell the truth, which is farther than where we came from as recently as as long ago as 50 years ago we need to be able to tell the truth the government does not have the authority to regulate your weapons it doesn't have the authority to control uh your your local schools it doesn't have the authority to tell you what you can or cannot do with your body whether that's vaccines or any other kind of drug you must put this in your body but you cannot put that in your body that's a weird position for a constitutional democracy to be in right you need to be able to make that ethical point on more than just efficiency grounds. But having said that, recognize that the duopoly of the legacy parties has been operating on the basis of fear for some time. And we need to be a little bit careful not to contribute to the fear. I'm not certain that that we would get as much traction by being the set your hair on fire party <laughs> as we would be if we said your hair is on fire <laughs> and I got the bucket of water. Now, this may not feel good to splash in your face, but I'm going to wake you up and we need to get back to the Constitution. Now, I might argue that, uh, you know, we can all argue about how far that is. Right. Because some people are going to say that's just peeling us back a dozen years. I'm going to say we probably need to go back 120 years. But, <laughs> you know, having said that, um, 
we need to be the party to stand up for rationality. We can't just be another third set your hair on fire party. Yeah. We can't be the kook that just got out of the closet. We need to be the ones that say, you've got two kooks that just came out of the closet. Wake up, right? Stand up for your liberty. Whether you want to listen to my ethical argument or my efficiency argument, it's time to to wake up and start uh, listening because we've all got to agree the parties are leveraging your fear. They're taking advantage of you. They're ramping up government control of, of your lives and your lives can be better. If you believe nothing else, at least please recognize that the programs the government has been trying by way of controlling your life haven't been working. I mean, please recognize that economic shutdowns in an effort to stop the virus didn't work. If, if you don't if you don't want to listen to me when I tell you the government doesn't have the authority, as an ethical matter, we never should have put up with it. And we never should forget this lesson for as long as we shall live. If you can't hear that, then at least hear it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, save yourself. Put your ethics aside if you must. You know, if you're just a born again, died in the wool communist, and you just must control people because that's what your thing is, then maybe we as a party can't reach you. But if you hear nothing else, at least hear us when we say the war on poverty has failed. The war on drugs has failed. The reason your public school system sucks is because it's the only industry in the United States that operates as a local monopoly except for your local police department, and they don't work very well either. Just on efficiency grounds, let's hold hands and make life better. Yeah. And the the, the second part to my question, uh, and we'll, we'll wrap it up on this one, is, is the Libertarian Party ready to hold presidency? Yes, I think so. Um, the reason, and, and, and I don't mean to sound uh, naive, I appreciate what's behind your question. Um, you, that, that was not as softball as uh, some might have taken it, right? Because <laughs> Yeah, Any, anyone you know, who doesn't know, there's been two different factions battling it out. It's yeah. internal party politics that nobody cares yeah. about, so it's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the reason I'm so quick to answer is because I have given this some thought, not because I think it's a silly question. Um, (laughs) It's certainly not a silly question. Indeed, I had to think about this before jumping into the to the race. And and maybe maybe let me work backwards. Um, The reason I'm in the race and the reason I put a team together And by the way, the reason it was so easy to find a number of people that would rally around these ideas is because we believe that the party will benefit from running a very professional campaign. To have a professional nominee, someone who is, uh, who has been in the business of public policy my whole career, right? Uh, in one way or another, whether that's 
teaching it, learning it, learning it the hard way, the bad way, uh, working for people that um, have disappointed us, the frustrations of being a police officer. I'm a big believer in public service nonetheless. And for whatever we may think about our skepticism of the government, the truth of the matter is that running for president is an act of public service. And I don't believe in promoting the inconsistency of running down public service, but promoting yourself as someone who wants to carry the nomination for president. I, that internal inconsistency doesn't wash with me. So I believe that our candidate needs to be a big proponent of public service one way or another and familiar with what that means. And I believe that the truth is that the American public still expects that in a big way. In other words, as a party and as a philosophy, we are skeptical of the government and we must remain so. Never can we allow ourselves to be co-opted, right? Uh, look, 20 years from now, after we have had a libertarian presidency, I don't want to come back on your podcast and for us to say, oh, yes, we need to give President so-and-so more power because she's a libertarian and we can trust her. That's bullshit, okay? <laughs> we can never yeah. allow ourselves to be co-opted in that sense. We have to always keep our eye on the ball that this is not about us. This is not about you. And it's not about me. It's not about our party. It's not about libertarians. It's about making our nation better, making people's lives better, getting the government out of the way and letting them rebuild their families and their communities and their ethics and the way of doing business. So much is at stake that we need to keep our eye on that ball. And because we believe that the American public will be receptive to our message, we believe it's an obligation to put it out there. Now, having said that, to your, to your question about is the party ready, we'll see. I believe that there are two different things that frustrate us as a party. One is that we can't get the boldness of our message delivered the way we want it to. And that is, is what has frustrated us about the, the presidential nominees the last two cycles. Do you agree with that? Oh, whole, wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. And, and is the motivation behind, uh, you know, my caucus, the Mises caucus, the motivation was um, not per se disruption. Disruption was just something that had to happen to accomplish the objective which was per se to make room for an apparatus that would deliver a much more bold message. And this is so important. Not only is it important because we're all frustrated and we're sick and tired of what we've been getting the past six years, 10 years, 14 years. We'll talk about that later. But <laughs> not only because we're frustrated by it, but as a political man, as a practical matter, we will not get noticed until and unless we cleave hard edges from the Democratic Party and hard edges from the Republican Party. We must do that just to be politically successful. 
Never mind to relieve our frustration. Just to get the job done, that's the way it has to be. We need to own our libertarian lane. That We're the party that stands up for your individual rights and points out the authoritarianism that has been encroaching on your lives. We need to own that and own that hard and loud and truthfully and believe it to be successful. But the other thing that uh, frustrates us, not just our messaging, but the fact that we have not had success. And I believe at least in the last cycle, a piece of that, in addition to our messaging that wasn't what we all wish it were. And by the way, what an opportunity, you know, during the pandemic to have stood up for our rights. And uh, look, I wasn't part of the campaign, so I need to be a little bit, you know, I, I don't like running people down in situations where I presume they were trying to do the right thing, right? But having said that, um, I don't know if people were afraid the pandemic was going to kill everybody and we would look stupid by saying lockdowns don't work and masks don't, you know, you can't shove a mask down my throat. Um, for whatever reason, it didn't work as a practical matter. And I do not believe that the candidate has been right the past couple of cycles in the sense that we need someone who's organically a libertarian. I hope you would agree with that. And yep. someone who at the same time, the, pub the, the public outside of our party can look at and say, yeah, maybe he's a little bit crazy, but um, you know, he can walk and talk. Um, he or she uh, has been around the block understands public policy, has, has been there and done that and can, you know, can bring people on board, can make a run for it. I could see that potentially working out. And if you don't have both of those elements, I think it's almost an insurmountable mountain to, to climb. If you don't have both the willingness to tell the truth about our policy. And at the same time, convince people that you can make a very credible run uh, by running a professional campaign, by having a strong background, by having the discipline to make this work. You need both of those elements. And I think that our campaign can bring that together. Yeah, well, that's well said, honestly. And uh, I'm really excited to see where things go. And Me too. I, you know, I, I really do think that we are at a very unique period in history and we have a very unique position. Um, I see nothing but good for the party. Um, I, I do wish, though, that some of the uh, opposition within the party that's complaining about things that don't matter right this second. <laughs> like, let's get to these things later. Like, put them on the back burner right now. We've yeah. got something to do. And then we can argue about it later. I will gladly do it later, but not right now. And that now. goes to your point. That goes in the discipline bucket. You know, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I wonder, we're, we're all angry enough to shout. We're angry enough to scream. We're angry enough <laughs> to argue with each other. Are we angry enough to be disciplined? Are we yeah. angry enough to do what it actually takes? 
Only time will tell on that one. So, Only time will tell. so on that, I think we're going to wrap up. But uh, let everyone know where they can find you, where they can go donate a couple of bucks. And well, I uh, appreciate that. Uh, you course. can find me at my home. I don't know. Did, did you want my home address? <laughs> Are you going to drive over? Or you want me to? I mean, you know, if a, I got to drop a off shrimp cash, in the Barbie you know. for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> MikeTremont.com. Of course, you'd have to spell it right. M-I-K-E is the easy part. Uh, my last name is uh, T-E-R-M-A-A-T. So it's MikeTremont.com. I wish I could make it easier for everybody and just say it's Mike.com, but that wasn't uh, <laughs> available. Uh, but it's it's that simple. There's a bunch of videos up there. Um, dozens and dozens and dozens of videos uh, from the old days and from the congressional campaign and new stuff and a little bit of Reno stuff. And, and that's kind of fun. And yeah, you know, if you got 20 bucks or 200 bucks or 2,800 bucks that's burning a hole in your pocket, I absolutely promise it'll all go to a good cause. We're all about spreading the word, getting the message out, letting people, not just inside our party, but people outside of our party know about libertarianism. Uh, I fund every nickel of administrative expense myself. We have uh, $100,000 in the bank. So this is something that we take very seriously. And we need a little bit more money. Yep. Do not donate more than Jacob. I'm talking to you here, buddy. So you listen to the following rule because I I don't want you to get in trouble with the federal government. You know that. Mm -hmm. Do not donate more than twenty eight hundred dollars. Okay. Yes. There are federal rules against that. So just hold back on your enthusiasm. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. But if well, somebody honest, felt like throwing 28 bucks, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Honestly, it was a great pleasure to get you on. And uh, we'll, we'll get you on for an update as well. Uh, I appreciate that. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to touch base and see how it's going. And uh, on that note, everyone, thank you for making it this point in the episode. And uh, you can always check us out pretty much everywhere on the web by going to rise to liberty.com forward slash links l-i-n-k-s that pulls up our entire liberty links uh everywhere we are on the web i had just partnered with and the two-party system network and uh regional prime television which is exclusively on roku devices uh be able to start spreading this uh liberty message all across the nation so make sure and go check out both of those, especially regional prime television, if you have a Roku device. And uh, on that, any any parting words for everybody? From me, get out there and tell the truth. Be your most libertarian self. Don't hold back. Remember that you have not just efficiency, but ethics on your side. It's not just an opportunity. It's an obligation for us. Well put. Until next time, stay free, my friends.